once upon a time. Long before time, our Bodhisattva was born as a quail. And he, he lived in his ancestral lands knowing every inch, every clod of soil, every bush, every tree, every rock, stream. He knew it as if it was uh, his own body. One day, being as things as they are, he thought of greener pastures. He thought he'd go beyond this land he knew so well. So he leaped up, flew along, soon left the, the boundaries of his own place, and found new, interesting-looking lands, hills and different kinds of trees and bushes, and was cruising along, thinking, ah, paradise at last. Found something even better than my home. Before he finished that thought, these talons gripped him, body and neck. It was a falcon. And soon the falcon, falcon had him high up in the air, was rejoicing with his meal about to be. And Bodhisattva said to himself, Oh no. <laughs> I've really blown it this time. How am I going to get out of this? So he thought a moment and then he said, out loud, <clears throat> Mr. Falcon, you know, you probably think you're really clever catching me out here in uh, your range. If you, had, if you had tried to get me on my own land, my own ancestral land of mothers, my mothers and fathers, you would never have caught me. Oh, yeah? Said the falcon. You think that's so, huh? Where's your land? And the bodhisattva, the, the little quail, said, just keep flying. If you're going in the right direction, I'll tell you when, we, when we're there. And with that, the falcon brought his razor-sharp beak even closer and said, boy, I'm going to have a nice meal today. And soon they were over the land of the bodhisattva. And he said, this is it. You can let me go. In fact, you can let me go in that wide open field. It's not a single bush or it's a blade of grass. Okay, said the falcon, and he let him down. And he flew up and up and up and up, thousands of feet. So it was just a little speck in the sky. But of course, those very sharp eyes, they can see anything, magnified. And he saw the sparrow down there so far, so far away and dove, dove almost straight down, so fast, thunder cracked, broke the speed of sound, right for our bodhisattva, who just stayed exactly where he was dropped by the falcon, didn't move an inch. The last moment before impact, he just let himself fall into a hole he knew was there, because this was his land. And the poor falcon crushed on the earth into nothingness, just dust blew off. And the bodhisattva this time walked around the perimeters of his ancestral land and said, I know why I'm here. And as long as I'm here, I, I know who I am. And I know the nature of things as they are. I need not 
go beyond my boundaries from here out. And he just continued with his lifting, moving, placing, and practice to go on in his lives until he became the Buddha. Now, in this story, the, the falcon is uh, his evil cousin, Devadatta, who is, uh, you know, usually in the lifetimes of the Bodhisattva and even the life of Prince Siddhartha, his last life before he became the Buddha, as a, um, as a um, kind of manifestation of Mara. Uh, Mara is the bad one the personification of greed, hatred, and delusion. But it's really not so much a personification of, of evil as it is of the tenacious hold that the world has on us. How we get lost through our senses, any of the five uh, physical senses, and in the mind of our endless reach of thoughts and emotions, mental states projections, wants, and fears. The world can have such a power of enchantment over us and experience the as-it-is nature of things uh, becomes distorted and we think we're reaching for happiness when we're actually often going in the opposite direction. We forget our path of liberation as the Bodhisattva did for a while. Our practice carries us to a place where language doesn't apply anymore. This is the nature of vipassana, of insight, of seeing things as they really are, a wordless understanding. We learn about and cultivate the tools of our practice, the, the vehicle of sila, samadhi, panya, the cultivation and practice of non-harming, uh, the cultivation of the non-distractedness of mind, mindful awareness, and the wisdom of insight, of seeing clearly. These are our vehicle, our, our way to the end of suffering. They're not to be attached to. No vehicle is worth clinging to. The attitude of non-attachment from the very beginning creates a very healthy relationship to how we develop and sustain our tools of liberation. So this includes all the teachings that we hear. You know, we're talking about a wordless understanding. We're talking about a place beyond language. And yet we talk. Every day you have to hear one of us saying something. But it's a contextual um, understanding that we're, we're trying to help increase the protective nature of the retreat, you know, to hold this net of safety so we can let go a little more. The inspiration that can follow from faith and, and initially we can regain faith by, our, by hearing the, the Dharma, asking questions, finding some clarity. So in this way, conceptual understanding is part, one of the tools of, a, of the vehicle of liberation. 
the recognition, if only cognitively, uh, that the insights that we're creating the container for uh, can actually bring happiness. And then the experience of one of the kinds of non-dependent happiness that come out of our insight. So tonight I want to talk a little bit about what can happen from just one of the many Buddhist views of what unfolds in insight practice. I'd like to talk about a way that deepening happens, reminding us that practice is a, like a spiraling cycle, not a linear path. And we're not taking particular steps, and each step brings us you know, higher and higher to some goal. Because in fact, some of the most difficult places of practice are the doorways to a deep insight and a deeper kind of happiness that we can experience. Insights are a mental and physical uh, sense of transformation. In, in front of the pagodas in Burma and Thailand, Sri Lanka and Cambodia, most of the Buddhist sites around the world in all the traditions, there are these mythical ferocious-looking beings, lion-like beings. In Burma, we call them chinta. Chinta are on two sides. There's two chinta on either side of stairways that lead up or into the temples, the pagodas. Often they're, they're there in all the four directions. No, no matter how you enter the pagoda from any side, there are these uh, amazingly often beautifully created from ages ago uh, beings with their mouth open, fierce looking teeth. They're there in mythology as great protectors of the inner sanctum, of what goes on in the center of the temple, which is a metaphor of what goes on in our own inner sanctum. When we come here through the uh, practice of non-harming, through the silence, through the creation of, of the samadhi, and the mindfulness, the sustained mindfulness, they are like these ferocious beings, these chintas, that are protecting in all directions so that we can let go completely, more and more completely, let go into how the Dharma works itself on the inner sanctums in this world, wordless place, in this place beyond imagination. So you think of these chinta beings as, as mindfulness and the Brahma Viharas as this fierce compassion. You know, and let go into our practice. Let the focus and flexibility unfold, increasing our sense of complete relaxation, complete rest in the moment. And then the mind 
begins its remarkable process. I remember at age uh, 16, I was flying to one of the Holy Lands in North Africa. I was by myself, but I was sitting next to an, an elderly lady. It seemed she was in her 70s or 80s. I was telling her where I was going, and probably she picked up some apprehension and fear. And I remember her saying to me, she said, just remember one thing. Let go and let God. Yeah, and we could say, let go and let Dharma. But when we come to this inner sanctum, when we come to this temple, and we learn the tools of practice and their guardian nature, mindfulness, fierce compassion and whatnot, we can more and more let go and let the Dharma do its thing. We get the sense that there's no one doing anything. We get the sense that really we're here to do nothing with full commitment. Total commitment. The, su the sustained uh, tools of energy, you know, courageous energy, mindfulness, concentration, begin to become exceedingly strong. And then there's moments when they become absorbed, totally absorbed on the, the, the suchness of things. In the Buddhist Pali, the yatta bhutta, the as it is this nature, yatta bhutta, as it is, nature of our experience. This is a true experience of things. The nature of the body, the elemental nature of the body, and the actual nature of mind. The profound centering of the mind called jhana. Jhana is a, a deeply absorbed unification of mind. Like a concentration, but in this case, it's an insight concentration. An insight. Jhana. The jhanas are very similar. They also develop in the pure concentration practices. If we were just to do metta, the power of metta, the one-pointedness on metta, and create these same very purified, absorbed states. Insight does the same thing. Purifying our mind of all the obstacles to its inner radiance, its natural radiance. So we can describe their similarities. It's just a different kind of, of, of absorption. Rather than being fully and completely fixed absorption on, say, loving kindness, it's here just the, the, the level of absorption necessary for the attunement to the yatabhuta, the suchness, the as-it-is nature of experience, what's real, what's real about our bodies and minds cuts through what we call uh, papancha, or the proliferation of mind. The guardians, the chintas, are out. They're there so that we can relax, you know, so that we can get that nothing's supposed to happen. There's no, there's no way we, we, f we can fail at this. This isn't a test or a contest or 
competition. Nothing's supposed to happen. Now, with that in mind, this is what can happen. <laughs> so I'm going to describe um, some factors of mind. We have them all the time. We have them every day. We need them. They're part of consciousness. They're one of the mental uh, factors in the Buddhist psychology, one of the 52, five of the 52 mental factors. And these particular five get grow in strength, as I said, from our sustained energetic presence, from the uh, continuous, uh, seamless mindfulness, from the concentration, that is the gathering together of the mind in focus and flexibility, in suppleness and firmness. So these five that I'm going to describe now are will be familiar to you in some ways, both in meditation and in ways in that we experience in daily life. I'm, I'm explaining them to you because in this process of doing nothing, that's the nature that creates a nature for how these five become strong. And when they reach a certain place of strength, it becomes an insight not by any will of our own, but by how the mind develops. It's, it's just extraordinary. It's amazing how when we get out of the way, there's an innate process of our psyche, of our hearts. Just like in the body, there's this natural effort to heal. You know, when we're sick or we get a cut, it's the same. And so we're just learning how to, to get out of the way of the stillness process to unfold. The five factors called vitaka, vichara, piti, sukha, and ekagara. I mean um, connecting, sustaining, joy, happiness, one-pointedness. Vitaka, the first one, uh, is, is the mind awakened. That, that moment of connection uh, where there's a sense of linking in to experience, applying the awareness to experience. So that we're focused on the breath, sensation of body, sound, and image in the mind. It's like the surfer that's in the process of, of catching and connecting with the wave. You know, she has to paddle the board, certain speed, certain rhythm, till there's this sense of the, the wave being connected with, and then let go, being lifted. This is how we um, direct and establish awareness in the moment on some aspect of experience or its flowing nature. Because this you know, enlivening aspect of vitaka uh, fires, refreshes, awakens the mind, it's the quality that dispels the, the sludge of sloth and torpor in the mind. Sometimes you can find that when you notice sloth or torpor and the dullness of mind or sleepiness happening, and you reflect a moment in the sense almost of calling up the vitaka, there's there's that fire, there's that refreshing, invigorating 
moment of connecting. And you actually can see the sloth and torpor as a thought fall away. Vichara. Once we're connected with the wave, there's a sense of immersion in it. There's a sense of becoming one with it. Belonging to the wave. Vichara is the immersion, the sustaining and the examining nature of awareness. It's like a, like a little bit of a quickening. Like when you add a catalyst to some agent that before you add it, it's in a certain condition, you add the catalyst and it changes it. And when I used to make surfboards, take the resin and you add the catalyst, and the resin was just a liquid until you added the catalyst. And then you had, a, you had to use the resin really quickly over the fiberglass because it could harden. If you got it wrong, it would harden too quickly. It would start all over again. It's the same. This, this catalytic force of vichara is more subtle. And it's that sense of becoming more one with the experience. That means you have to let go more. You know, it's a more transparent awareness than that initial connecting. It's what anchors the awareness in continuity. And because of that, continuity, a, a clarity and confidence grows. And so does faith. So the second jhanic factor, the second centering of mind quality, uh, dispels doubt. First one, vitaka, with its firing capacity, awakening capacity, uh, helps let go sloth and torpor in the mind. Vichara, by its continuity function, sustainability, begins to overcome doubt as our clarity and confidence grow. These two, these first two qualities, are of great value because they begin to create a seclusion of mind. Meant by that, it's a seclusion from the hindrances. It's the beginning of the end of papancha. A proliferate, proliferating mind. Mind that just trips out all the time on experience. Makes more, wants to make something more of what's happening. No matter what it is, in a moment, you know, a scent has us years ago in someone's kitchen talking about something that has no application to the moment. You know, we're lost in the memory. Or we trip out on how to do this practice, make it better or different or non-boring. This first retreat that Saida Upandita taught in uh, Hawaii. It was on the big island of Hawaii. Uh, and he was just getting used to this strange new breed of yogis, Western yogis. Uh, and they all seemed to be liking to do their own thing. So he'd, he'd really observe you know, these strange and bizarre activities. One yogi in particular really captured his imagination and interest and wonder. And, and he, he, this yogi, this new practice for him, and obviously he knew something else. I guess that was some kind of yoga because he started to do his walking meditation on his hands. The whole length, you know, next to people doing lifting, moving, placing, he's walking on his hands with his feet kind of bent over, you know, in, in a fine balance. So this 
Saira Pandita called him the scorpion yogi. <laughs> but pancha is, is the, the incessant conceptualization of experience. You know, this is the habit of making it different, of categorizing, assessing, comparing, interpreting. We do it all the time. We do it more than anything else. We certainly do it more than being mindful. Take a moment of initial experience, a sound, a sensation, taste, anything. That first moment, there is a natural awareness, seeing it just as it is. The untrained mind, it doesn't come into our knowing capacity you know, sh when, before we practice much mindfulness. It instantly moves into a concept. When we, when we name the bell, we name the bird, we name a person. And so we're immediately fixed on that concept and then uh, constructs a bunch of concepts together. And then the like and dislike that might immediately be there without awareness too and the whole interpretation, the story, the narrative that follows, just in a moment. So with this seclusion of mind, with this application of, of mind awakened, connecting, sustained mind or awareness, we start to grow a little distance from the, the hindrance patterns that create this papancha mind. The third jhanic factor, called piti, call it spiritual joy. It's an enlivened interest in the process, what's happening, a pleasure in the process, a delight, at times a rapture. We feel more buoyant. The practice and the, and the tools of our practice, our vehicle feels like it is buoyant on this sea of changing experience. Things become amazing, at times bizarre and strange. BT arises with, with the natural energy of, of our accomplished effort. That means the effort that becomes more effortless when we feel like we've, we're entering the current and letting go and being carried by the process, by the Dharma. Five different kinds of piti or rapture. Minor rapture. Get goosebumps. It feels like your hair standing on end, you know. Thrill. Ooh boy. You know, it's kind of that little feeling in the beginning. And then momentary. <laughs> momentary joy. It's like a flash of lightning, a little more of a jolt. Huh, you know, it wakens interest more. All these have functions. Oh, what's going on here? It's unusual. You know, a little further step beyond the papancha mind. And then the third kind, showering or descending joy, comes more rapturous here. It's like lying on a warm Hawaiian sandy beach and being just the inundated by the ebb and flow of, of waves. <laughs> Feels really good. <laughs> Washed over by this feeling of joy. 
The fourth kind, transporting, uplifting joy or rapture. Often you feel the body feels pulled up. Body straightens. Tenses even. And the, the thrill can be like a rushing, you know, up and down the spine. Sometimes this kind of joy feels disturbing at the same time. Listen to this uh, turn-of-the-century Thai meditation manual that describes what can happen in transporting joy. This is the last turn-of-the-century, like the 1900s, not the ones that was a couple weeks ago. When transporting joy arises, it is very strong. It makes the whole body shake and tremble. The meditator will fall to the left or to the right, bow down, clasp hands and feet, sit down, stand up, and then run around filled with strange emotions. The meditators will cry and laugh and will not be able to shut their eyes or mouth. The veins will protrude and the blood feel hot and cold. The body will feel as if it is expanding and will elevate the length of a finger span, a cubit, or arm's length. This is not a sign of madness. Eventually, the mind will settle in the, in the fifth all-pervading joy. But this is true. Now, people will talk about you know, walking along and sudden, suddenly feeling dizzy, you know, like you're going to be uh, pushed off the path, or you're on a rocky boat, or you're walking on jello. It's, it's a discomfort, and, and uh, I, um, it's unple- it can be unpleasant experience. But it's often actually a factor of one of these five kinds of joy, the transporting, uplifting level. But when the fifth level comes, it's very pervading and suffusing. It's the f- sense of like a, a, a mountain stream suddenly filling up a rock cave with cool water. It's a sense of ambrosia, breathing in and out ambrosia, since often that you're taking very satisfying breaths, very fulfilling breaths. So there's moments when we experience, you know, one of these five kinds of joy should be somewhat familiar to all of us at different times. So we talked about vitaka, connecting, awakening, Awareness, vichara, sustaining, immersing, builds confidence, overcomes doubt. The piti. Piti, because of its nature, uh, overcomes aversion in the mind. Ill will, for obvious reasons, because it fills the body with with the opposite. There's nothing for the aversion, the ill will to cling to, to hold on to. Sukha is the fourth jhanic factor, quality of mind that grows in strength from our meditation practice. Sukha, whereas piti could be called spiritual joy, sukha could be called spiritual happiness. And here we're talking about a happiness that's now even more uh, a reflection of seclusion of mind uh, because it's less dependent than any of the previous factors on external experience. It's a more non-dependent happiness. Sense of ease, a sense of gratification, a deep sense of comfort in the body and mind. Pervading relaxation. 
but also attracts the sukha, the spiritual happiness, attracts other associated skillful states, the mature energy and brighter uh, faith, mindfulness, concentration. The sukha uh, factor is when we can sit in peace, even with a lot of unpleasant experience. Sense of centeredness in the midst of painful sensations or emotions. This depth of peacefulness, ease, overturns the excitement or depression of the hindrance of restlessness and worry. The mind becomes more, uh, more buoyant, stronger. With the happiness and contentment and less distractedness, we become more one-pointed. Ikagara is the name we give to the fifth jhanic factor. One-pointed, non-distraction. Unified consciousness. It's unified in a complete rest and centeredness on experience. Unwavering. Because of this unwavering centeredness, there's a shift out of the sort of distraction of desire to a stillness, to a non-seeking awareness. Doesn't need anything to be different. So these are the five factors. Vitaka, dispels sloth and torpor with its connection. Vichara, dispels doubt with its sustainability. Piti, overcoming ill will with the different kinds of five kinds of joy. Sukha, transforming restlessness into a greater contentment and ease of body and mind. And the power of one-pointedness, kagara, changing desire into that relaxed, non-seeking stillness. And I want to describe just a short version of the four vipassana jhanas. It's a description of four different kinds of insight. They're one and the same. When these five jhanic factors are strong and harmonized, they come together in a moment of insight that is the first vipassana jhana. Is the happiness of seclusion. We begin to see the way things are. And then with more refinement, there's the second vipassana jhana, characterized by uh, by joy, primarily by joy. This is the happiness concentration. And we take on this wondrous, amazing quality of mind as we are present for whatever comes up. Third vipassana jhana is the insight uh, that takes us even deeper into seeing the true nature of things, the as-it-is nature, the suchness of things, and creates powerful happiness of contentment because it's, it's strongly uh, characterized by sukha, spiritual happiness. And the fourth vipassana jhana 
also an insight is the happiness of wisdom and equanimity because of that very fine balance, clarity, deep equanimity where uh, ekagara, one-pointedness, is present. You remember these insights, the results of honing our tools of practice? It's still part of the vehicle. They're not to be clung to. The insights have a function. Their function is to loosen attachment. So we see deeper. So there's a greater relinquishment, greater release, a greater level of liberation. There's a tremendous power of, uh, of pure awareness and, and a intimacy of oneness with experience when we have this first jhana. It's like, it's really some awakening. And we start to see what we've been hearing about again and again, that everything is changing and there's an insecure or unreliability to experience we call dukkha. And it's, there's no absoluteness behind it. There's no one behind the story. This is the beginning of genuine insight, this first jhana. And it's a leap. It's characterized by those first two jhanic factors. It's strong. The strongest uh, aspects of this first jhana because of the connecting, the immersing. It's like the excitement of catching and being on that wave. There's a thrill to it, power to it. And the first sense of yata-bhuta, this is the suchness of things. And being able to step out for a moment of the proliferation of papancha mind. Michelle and I were teaching a long retreat in Australia once, and at the end of the Dharma talk, we came out to look at the full moon. And then we'd usually go into uh, my room, talk about the yogis, uh, and then Michelle went upstairs and I'd go to sleep. But one night this happened and, and we went out, looked at the moon, and then I walked through the walking meditation room to my room, left the door open for Michelle. But she never came in. Came in another door. She kind of walked around in the bathed in the moonlight and came in another door. And then, so I was kind of surprised when she came in and I said, well, how come you came in that door? And she answered very softly, as you know her voice to be, so that I heard her. But the yogi who was coming in the door I came in didn't hear her and thought I was talking to him. Why'd you come in that door? He thought I said to him. Michelle and I talked. She went to bed. I, you know, I was sleeping for three or four hours, and somewhere around 3.30 in the morning, there's this knock on the door. Stephen, are you awake? And when I woke up, I said yes. <laughs> and this, this yogi came in, and he had been in the most excruciating pain all night. He said, 
why did you ask me why I came in that door? <laughs> and I said, ask you what? What door? You know, and then it dawned on, you know, like, finally he got me to understand. And I said, oh, my friend, I was, wasn't even talking to you. You know, and just hugged him and got him back to the moment. And the next day, we explained to him this phenomenon we call yogi mind, <laughs> which is the proliferating power of taking a moment's experience and going rampant, going mad with it. You know, the poor person. The first jhana and that first insight is really an important step in our path. But it's still close to reflection. We taka and we chara are qualities of mind we use every time we think and speak. We're just honing them in meditation to have a special purpose here. But they're still close to how we use them most, most of the time. We apply our awareness, we connect, you know, and we sustain our thoughts and our speech and so forth. You can see, you can get that point. So, naturally, the mind's going to start to bend back to those reflections and, and step out of that insight awareness. Hindrances get in, again, through the, uh, uh, you know, a rip in the canopy of our uh, protective space. They'll go between the legs of the chinta. They'll sneak in to the inner sanctum. Somehow they'll get in there. So, you know, we just keep up our practice. We just continue to be mindful. Have you figured it out yet that the answer to all of your questions is, being, is to be mindful? And it's been so for 2,500 years, and it's the same for a six-week or three-month retreat. The teachers are, we're get, we find real creative ways to say it differently. But we're, st we're really saying the same thing. Be mindful. So those reflections come and get lost again and the thoughts and the hindrances. You just say, keep being mindful. Uh, and gradually the, the faith in Dharma builds and gets stronger, it's developed. A moment-to-moment -moment effort begins to give way into this natural energy, this more uh, effortless flow of things. The vitaka and the vichara, they recede. They don't disappear. Mental states, they don't disappear. They, but they recede into the background. And what comes forward is more of a spacious joy, interest. The second jhana is where the, the, the piti grows strong in influence. It's also an insight, this second jhana. It's the early insight into what we call arising and passing nature of things. Arising and passing insight stage. And here we catch the ephemeral, momentary of the as-it-isness. Stillness is like electric. And in within that stillness, everything has this sense of pulsation. Body elements, mind elements, peering, vanishing. Fascination, the elemental nature. 
Again, you don't have to hold this conceptualization, conceptualization, but like the earth element can become really apparent in hardness and softness, roughness or smoothness. And in such insights, we can begin to play a bit. Hardness is usually unpleasant. When it's really unpleasant, when there's no motivation of aversion, but one of of preservation of practice or balance of practice, you can look for its opposite. Look for softness in the body. Look for the elemental nature of softness, the opposite of hardness, or smoothness, the opposite of roughness. Just see if you can see it without needing to get rid of the other. You can just bring some balance. The water element, cohesion, fluidity, cohesion. Uh, it's like when it's raining outside. And, and you know, we go running out. It's been dry for a long time, and it's great to be out in the rain. Uh, and it soaks into the dust, dirt, uh, which all collects into this, you know, kind of gooey stuff. So we can make our mud pies, you know. We still do that, don't we? Oh, we did, we used to. That gooey stuff is what happens when water connects with uh, the earth element. And we feel, if we look inside, we'll find some goo in our body. We'll find gooey stuff. That's that cohesive nature of the water uh, is real, something we can experience. Or it's opposite. Like it's when there's too much water and it's flowing, we find fluidity in the body, whether it's energy or sensations, you can feel a flood of them. Very fascinating insight into the nature of the body. The, the fire element, temperature, the whole range of temperature. At any time, turn the awareness on the body and you'll find warmth, heat, burning, coolness, cold. That's what the body is. If we experience tension, tightness, stiffness, we're experiencing the air element, like wind in the balloon, wind in the sail. This can be really unpleasant to the degree of tension, especially if that tension is mixed with heat and hardness. Reflect. See if you can find that the opposite of that wind-air element in the expression from support to vibration. Like within tension, within that tightness, stiffness, you can find particles appearing and disappearing. This insight, the second jhana of arising and passing, uh, with this wondrous nature of joy, of interest, take any experience at all in the body and it becomes vehicle for the as-it-is nature of things. This is also a danger zone, what's called stopping within. Because we get addicted to one of those five kinds of joy. Usually one of the earlier ones. The subtle attachment to it. And stopping within means we keep trying to get it back, keep going for that hit of joy, of 
suffusing joy in that warm Hawaiian water, suffusing, surging. Stopping within is also called the stage of rolling up the mat because we're getting these extraordinary insights, seeing the arising, passing nature and feeling so blissful. People, yogis, sometimes think they're done. So they roll up their zafus, mats is how it used to be. You know, I've, I think I've come, I've gotten what I came for. They'll say, go home. What we say is, try to be more mindful. <laughs> Notice that subtle craving. It's a, called a corruption of insight. Part of the practice too. So we can do that and appreciate the second kind of happiness. The first is the happiness of seclusion. The second insight or jhana number two is the happiness of concentration due to the joy and rapture that's so focused on the unique nature of experience. Soon that initial thrill, excitement of rapture seems to mature or fade or blend into a, a deeper sense of ease by being more mindful. And this paves the way for jhana number three, which is the mature insight into arising, passing nature. And this jhana has as its sort of foremost uh, Characteristic, sukha. It's spiritual happiness. That ability to be with, with any pain or joy and feel contentment, not be affected. In fact, this third jhana, this insight of the mature arising and passing is the happiness of contentment. Subtle peace, calm abiding, Strong focus and yet suppleness of mind. Everything seems quite transparent. You sit long periods of time with this lightness of being, don't want to get up. And we're no longer uh, subject to seduction by those inner Dharma pleasures, the rapture, the thrill, the pervading sense of ease. We hear our insights might shift from the minutia, you know, the uniqueness, say, of fire, water, earth, air, to process, to seeing everything in flow, everything in constant change, with a, a, a calm abiding behind it. No longer the subtle agitation of thrill, because joy has receded along with Vitaka Vichara. These two insights, jhana two, jhana three, the, the tender and mature insights into arising and passing are quite a turning point in practice. Something shifts that subtly changes the direction of our practice forever. The sutta image is of is it's as if we've lifted our hand up. It's bound to come down. 
metaphor refers to seeing so deeply into the as-it-is nature of things that sooner or later the unconditioned will be touched. The peace of Nibbana, the deathless. This third mature insight is, the suttas say, the sweetest happiness, that happiness of contentment sweetest happiness that can be experienced. That makes sense when we go on to the fourth jhana because happiness, sorrow, pain, pleasure all recede. The sukha recedes. The fourth jhana is, uh, is equal to that profound insight of equanimity. Now, there's been a lot of other stages that have arisen. After rising and uh, passing, it can be the sense of everything falling away, everything dissolving. From that, the sense of, uh, the sense of security, comfort uh, goes away. Uh, you, can feel uh, you can feel fear. You can feel upset. It's actually connected with stages of insight. It's a healthy kind of of fear in that way, and healthy kinds of despair, healthy kinds of misery, disenchantment. <laughs> we may not like them, but they're part of the practice. And one of those uh, troughs of peaks and troughs cycles where we think we might have regressed, <clears throat> we ask, what's happening here? What am I doing here? Why am I doing this? Nothing to grab onto. Teachers tell you, Try to be mindful of that too. Persevere. We let go even more. The chintas are doing their job. We feel safer in the inner sanctum. We let go, we let dhamma to an ever greater degree of subtlety. And, though, and then this stage of equanimity arises as a profound sense of peace with things as they are. Beyond contentment. The sweetest happiness has that element, you know, of, of liking. Here there's no like or no dislike. The feeling tone is neutral, equanimous. We don't, mindfulness doesn't care. Awareness doesn't care what's, power, what's arising at all. It's within its own power of unshakability, the awareness now is. It seems to pick up objects even before the mind is disturbed by like or dislike, by any reaction to pleasant experience or unpleasant experience. This is the happiness of wisdom and equanimity. The happiness of seclusion with the first jhana, happiness of concentration with the second jhana, with the, with the joy prevailing, uh, rapture, enlivened interest, the happiness of contentment, the sweetest happiness, when, the, when spiritual ease, gratification of body and mind are there and we're seeing uh, the, the very mature aspects of arising and passing experience in the mind and body and all the sense doors. And then this most subtle, kind of beyond sweet, peace with things. 
Sometimes only knowing is what we're aware of. So subtle. Body feels no, not separate from air. Knowing is the most predominant flow of experience we can know. Mindfulness develops all of these in the inner recesses of the temple. There's nothing we have to do. It's that sense of protectedness around and letting it unfold. This isn't the end of practice. This is just the best part of understanding conditioned nature. The ground is here then prepared for that mysterious moment, possibility of touching the unconditioned, where the first two noble truths of dukkha and its cause, the samsara, are experienced simultaneously with the peace of nibbana and the transcendent path, the third and fourth noble truths, fully known in the flash of a transcendent moment. This is complete peace. Let's sit in peace for a moment. your good practice continue. May you all be sustained by all these wonderful different kinds of happiness, dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.